I want to shake up my approach to teaching in order to engage my students and create a collaborative culture and math class. But I've got my curriculum and math standards to cover. I want to teach with rich tasks that spark curiosity. Maybe three-act math tasks, maybe something else. But where do they fit in? When I do try to use a task to spark curiosity, I find that after some initial interest in the task, things quickly return to the same old, same old, with students waiting for me to lead them through step by step. Step. Sound familiar? After my lesson, I've realized that not all of my students have made the math connections I was hoping for. Do I move on or do I keep coming back to the same idea? How do I ensure I meet the needs of all my learners? This is episode 12 on the Making Math Moments That Matter podcast. And it's just Kyle and I here helping you wrap your head around these complex math classroom issues. We'll be giving you some ideas, some tips, some suggestions, and examples to help address these big concerns. Put your phone in your pocket and let's get started. Cue it up. Welcome to the Making Math Moments That Matter podcast. I'm Kyle Pierce. And I'm John Orr. We are two math teachers who, together, with you, the community of educators worldwide who want to build and deliver math lessons that spark engagement, fuel learning, and ignite teacher action. It's just you and me, John, to talk about teaching through task. So let's not waste any time. Yeah, buddy. Why don't you start us off with where this episode idea came from? Yeah, absolutely, John. You know, recently, you and I have been doing a lot of talking and actually myself and some of my colleagues at work about this difficulty teachers have in seeing where tasks fit these rich tasks or some might use three act math tasks as the structure that they're using. But at the end of the day, oftentimes teachers are picturing these as like activities and not actually a lesson. And really what we want to do in this episode is kind of unpack some of those ideas to make sure that we're being very clear about where these tasks fit fit in our math program and to make sure that students actually are learning from using these tasks. So in particular, John, for me recently, I've been spending a lot of time in classrooms in different grade levels and really how this works because oftentimes we're coming in and really doing some experimenting with students and really trying to take the same task and trying it in different grade levels. Oftentimes we'll come in and we'll work with a class, but we actually don't have any particular funding currently to do any of the co-planning ahead of time. So really we're going in myself and oftentimes it'll be with Yvette Lehman, one of my colleagues. We'll come in to kind of see how students react to certain problems and really see what sort of consolidation we can put together. And oftentimes the big question we get is, where do these tasks actually fit in? And really, I think what teachers are thinking in their minds is they're believing that these tasks are really useful for summarizing content students have already been taught or pre-taught through some sort of traditional lesson structure, when in reality, we're coming in and we're actually really working with a lot of students we don't know very well. And we're trying to ensure that the task is accessible for all. And we have a very clear learning objective in mind. In these particular classrooms that I'm thinking of, we were focusing on introducing the mathematical model of the double number line, really trying to connect from a concrete number line, building, uh, Kathy Fosno calls it number trains, and then making a formal double number line. And we can do this in younger grades all the way through into grades seven, eight, and nine. And at the end of the lesson, the teachers are still wondering like, so what would the next lesson look like? And really our response tends to be, well, what's the next rich task going to be to extend this idea? John, like, have you ever had any of these sorts of experiences when you're working with teachers in terms of their interpretation of like where these tasks go and how they fit? Yeah, for sure. You know, one of the things that most, you know, Kyle, being a high school teacher, that most teachers are imagining that these come at the end of units instead of at the beginning of units. So, for example, you know, we're trying to talk about one of this big issue here today that people want to try teaching to spark curiosity and fuel their sense making. They want to like use these tasks that you're just referenced, but they think I can't use those because I have to cover my curriculum standards or I have to cover all the learning goals in the year and I can't fit 
that teaching style in and at the same time meet those standards. And, you know, I think there's a little misconception there about how that looks because that's true. I think that's going to be true if I pre-teach the same way. Like I have all of these lessons in order, like lesson one, lesson two, lesson three, lesson four. And then I'm like, oh, but it would be so cool to do this three-act math task from Kyle's site or from Dan Meyer's site. And so we stick it at the end of the lesson because the kids will already know about like how to solve equations or use proportions or, and what we stick it at the end of the lesson because it's an application type problem. And that's where that would fit. And what's happening is if you do that and you spend that period, you know, noticing and wondering and bringing out some of the learning goals or the strategies to solve that problem, you probably will run out of time in your course when teaching that way. And you won't kind of cover all of those standards because you are fitting this in at the end of a lesson. And you know what, I think where we need to rethink about this is like, we should be starting to save time. And also where do these fit in is we strongly believe now we've definitely mentioned this throughout the podcast before, is that we definitely think that these tasks should be used to introduce big ideas, right, Cal? Right. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I'm hearing you really referencing, I'm picturing in my mind, the way I used to plan out my course would be taking my curriculum standards, my curriculum expectations, and I would sort of figure out which big groups to teach them in. So I was like, all right, these six all go together and I would just put them in one big chunk. I'd call that a unit. And, yeah. And you probably you know, didn't sometimes- even... You probably didn't even do that, right, Kyle? The textbook did that for you. Exactly. Like, especially, you know, myself being a former high school teacher, you know, we had textbooks. And I mean, obviously, the people who wrote those textbooks, they spent a awful lot of time as a planning team first to figure out like how they're going to structure the content. And then they've actually done all the thinking to try to break it up. But as Jill Bowler referenced in episode number 10, she talked about and she mentioned about curriculum writers or standard writers and how they chop up all the standards in these tiny little pieces and like hundreds or maybe even thousands of pieces. And then they sort of organize them in certain ways where now the connections are lost. And mathematics is all about about connections. And unfortunately, when I'm teaching everything together, if I teach everything related to fractions together and everything related to multiplication together or everything related to linear relations together, and that's it, all of the connections across strands or across ideas are lost. And we as the teacher, we weren't the ones who made the textbook. So we didn't get that education from doing that process, from organizing and trying to figure out the implication of putting this content here, this section there, but the teachers lose that connection. And that means that our students likely will never see those connections. So really when we're using these tasks, they're such a great way to try to have a big learning objective there, like a a learning goal, a very specific learning goal, but then you can be very intentional about making connections to other ideas across the curriculum. Uh, You make some really good points here, Kyle. And I think one of the biggest stumbling blocks we have as teachers is that that textbook or that unit plan, or maybe we made that plan, you know, a couple years ago, or, you know, even we make that plan this year. And that plan looks like on day one, we do this on day two, we do this on day three, we do this. Now we have a quiz. There's a lot of comfort there. There's a lot of comfort because you know that if you follow that plan, you are going to cover the curriculum standards, like you will get those out into the open and teachers get really scared when we change that up because that comfort level of following that day-by-day plan will get that curriculum out into the open. But the reality is when you teach that way, like in that very traditional way that I'm going to show these learning examples or these these learning goals out this day, and then I'm going to do the next day. It's like, okay, so what, then when that day ended, do we have some students who have you know made those connections that you're looking for and some don't? And so now we're into the situation of like, do I move on to the next day or don't I move on to the next day? And now I have to go, okay, do Does everything get pushed back a day or do I keep going on and I just say, okay, those kids are missing those connections. And I think when we have those set plans, we start to go, okay, I have to move on because my plan is my plan and I have to get my curriculum expectations out into the open so that I can say I taught them. 
them. But, you know, the reality for sure is like, just because you taught them, does everyone learn them? Because I think if the students didn't learn them, did we really teach them? I think you just nailed it because for years, I know I would feel good about the fact that I'm on day 30 of the course and I've already covered, and I'm using bunny ears on that, covered this many things. So I'm on track or the opposite is true. I go, oh, geez, I feel like I haven't done this part yet, or I haven't reached this goal that I had in my long range plan explicitly. But yet in both cases, if I actually zoomed out and looked at what students actually knew and understood, I always had this group of students who were right on track. And I had this other group of students who weren't getting it. And just because I was moving through the curriculum, that wasn't actually helping students. So I was actually not achieving the goal like I think I wanted to, but at least I could sleep better at night because I had checked it off the list. So you've referenced this idea of being kind of scared to move away from this sort of checklist approach. And I totally get it. I was there, John, you were there, you know, many teachers struggle with this idea. But in reality, when you get to any assessment, whether it's formal or informal, and students aren't understanding or showing a depth of understanding of these content or these curriculum expectations, then we have to stop ourselves and really start wondering like whether this addiction to checking these expectations off is what we actually want to be doing or whether we want to think of something deeper than that. Like we often struggle with students and their problem solving skills. Like that tends to be something that no matter what classroom I go into, teachers are like students aren't very good at problem solving. But yet how we teach the curriculum in this sort of checklist fashion is just to like tell, 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 tell instead of allowing students to solve problems and help them make connections at the end. And I think that's kind of one of the big goals we have for this particular episode is, you know, let's go back to some of these problems we talked about in the beginning. And, you know, we want to engage students like we want them to want to come to math class and engage in interesting problems. But on the other hand, we have this sort of curriculum or content burden that's on our shoulder. Like we feel this pressure that we need to be telling in order to make sure that we got through it all. And really what we want to do here is give some actionable steps to help teachers think of how we can do both at the same time and hopefully go deeper with our students than the way that I know I was teaching for the longest time and I know you were teaching for the longest time, which was, yeah, I covered it, but students didn't really get it. So let's dive into a little bit about what that might look like or sound like, John. Like, So you talked a little bit about um, using rich tasks. And for you and I, we tend to use Dan Meyer's three-act math task structure. But at the end of the day, that structure can be used in so many different ways in order to engage students. But then also, it's really easy for us to sort of leave the math behind. So like, when are you using these tasks rather than like at the end of a unit? What does that look like or sound like in your class? What that looks like or sounds like in my classes, I, I want to address just a couple things about that. Because like you said, most of us would, and I started this way too, was I would do it at the end. I'm like, that would be a great way to sum up all the learning that we did and apply our knowledge to solve this problem. But I think we free up so much time in our curriculum and in our courses, if we use these tasks to teach through them. And what I mean by that is any big idea, and this is what I do in my classes, any big idea coming down to say, like, this might be the start of a unit or a start of a couple days of a lesson. And I use a three act task or an open middle task or a low floor, high ceiling tasks to start that idea and get some of the ideas out into the open for us to analyze. And I think one of the biggest things about task selection is because we could go to Dan's site or we could go to your site or we could go to a search engine and search for these types of tasks. But I think still some of the things that we're doing, and I don't want to say incorrectly, but kind of like a misconception about it is if I go to Dan's site and I grab his task on the taco cart problem, or if I go to his site and grab a task on you know the popcorn 
fulfilling problem. As a teacher, we're thinking, I'm just going to do this problem. And instead of thinking about what specific learning goals you want to address, and I think that is the beginning. So if you're thinking about like, how do we do this effectively? We have to stop thinking about what the task is and start thinking about what learning goals you want to bring out into the open. So if you're in the unit of proportions or ratios and you want to get some of these ideas into the open, then think that first. Like if I use this task, will that allow me to see strategies from my students that meet those learning goals? Or will I see some, you know, almost like a diagnostic assessment a little bit? Well, like, will I see any of these kind of float out from them? And then you can start to shape how that lesson looks. And we'll talk about how that next step goes. But for me, to start where these fit in is right at the beginning of big ideas. And the most important thing is you have to choose that test based on what you want to come out and not the other way around. Right. And I know for me, like I was gung ho after I started seeing like, wow, these are really engaging tasks. And you get sort of, I'll call it like distracted. And maybe you kind of fall in love with the idea of engagement and you forget about the whole purpose of the engagement. Like we want to get kids attention so we can actually do really cool things in math class. And, you know, for me, you referenced the taco cart. Like that was a task that I use. One of the first tasks I use from Dan Meyer. And it's a really cool task that can really bring out a lot of big ideas. But I wasn't really so concerned. I was like, oh, you know, you can use Pythagorean theorem in this solution. So in my mind, I was like, I'm going to do that after I teach Pythagorean theorem. So I would do my traditional lesson. You know, I'm going to teach you about like, here's the hypotenuse is always side C. You always label it side C. And here's the formula that you use and all of these things. And then I would give that task. And really that was backwards. The way I should have done it was I should have had the learning objective in mind. Ah, the Pythagorean theorem is what I want to go after today. What's a task? Like, how can I spark curiosity around that learning objective? And I'm going to argue that sometimes it doesn't necessarily involve a three-act math task. It might be using some of those elements. And, you know, John, we talk a lot about the curiosity path. So some of the things that I can do don't have to be with video. They could be like, I could actually cut out a bunch of triangles and let kids try to experiment with it and ask them specifically about what they notice when they start finding the area of the different rectangles that we can form or the different squares that we can form off of each of the side lengths of the Pythagorean theorem. And then from there, we might choose to go into that three-act math task or whatever it might be. But now it's like, how do we start with that learning objective in mind? And then once we figure out, what am I trying to pull out of this? That's when you determine if there's a task that maybe already exists, then don't recreate the wheel. Or maybe there's an activity that I can use, or there's likely tons of them out there that are just inquiry-based or discovery-based or investigative that you can actually do with your students to kind of help them pull out some of the elements. And, you know, right now I'll mention, we'll put it in the show notes, we actually have a curiosity search engine. If you go to makemathmoments.com forward slash find, that's makemathmoments.com forward slash find that will bring you to a custom Google search engine where John and I have actually taken a bunch of great websites and we've populated this Google search engine to only search those sites. I think there's like 30 or 40 of them and you can type in the topic or the idea and then you'll get to see some activities or tasks that already exist. But again, don't use the task because the task looks cool. Does it help you reach that learning objective that you've clearly articulated? So John, what's like the next step? Like what would we be doing after that? If we figure out, okay, like this is the learning objective. Like I think I might have an idea of like the task or maybe an activity that I want to do to kind of elicit some of this mathematical thinking. Like what should I be doing again? And this is still before the lesson to make sure that I'm fully prepared to go at this and teach through task. Hey, Math Moment Makers, Kyle here, and I've got just a quick message specifically for our district-level mathematics decision makers out there. Do you feel like you're spinning your wheels when making district-level goals for mathematics programming from kindergarten through grade 12? Setting new goals each year only to find little to no real shift in pedagogical practice or educator content knowledge across the district as a whole? 
Take a moment to book a short call with our team so we can learn more about your specific district and educator learning needs in mathematics so we can assist you in taking the first step of many in the right direction. Visit makemathmoments.com forward slash district to book a web call with our team today. We have a limited number of spots for districts just like yours, so don't wait. Head to makemathmoments.com forward slash district and grab a spot in our calendar now. This is where we call like igniting our moves. Like what are the moves us teachers are going to make before, during, and after that lesson? So if we've already decided these are the learning goals we want to address, what do I do next? Like what do I do before I even go into it? We reference the book, The Five Practices for Orchestrating Productive Mathematical Discussions quite regularly because we find that this is almost like the guidebook for you to save you time and bring out learning into the open. And like, I just referenced before, it's kind of like if you do these steps from the book, you can save yourself a lot of, say, I'm going to call it curriculum time because you're going to see understanding before you would have normally done you know, your lessons. And if you think of our traditional way, I would have next just all of a sudden, my planning in my traditional way would have been like, okay, I'm going to do this example. I have to make sure and you'd scaffold those examples. So you'd start with easy ones. I do a couple easy ones and then go into some of the more complex ones. And then you'd always end with like the word problems. But by switching it around and posing the problem to begin with, with your students by, you know, noticing and wondering and doing these other things, you're going to save some time. But what has to happen before you even do all those is the first step in the five practices which is you have to anticipate. And I think this is where we get to save the time in the actual lesson in your timeline. It's going to take time out of your planning day, because now what we're going to do is if we've selected this task, we are now going to start listing what will I see from my students. So we got to really know who our students are while we do this. Like we got to understand what they know going into this part of the planning process. You have to kind of anticipate. That's one of the practices. You have to anticipate what they'll do. So one thing that I do, Kyle, is I have a piece of paper. Like we have the task and I solve the task as many ways in as many ways as I can, thinking the ways that they will solve it. And so I want to come up with a few different ways how they're going to kind of tackle that uh, using some of either the things that we've been introduced, uh, we've introduced along the way in our course, depending on where we are in our course or thinking back to what prior knowledge they should have. And I say should, right? So thinking back to uh, what they'll use to tackle these ideas, because once this is the great part, if you can map that out, you'll know what to look for. And when you see it, you can start to make some connections. Is that what you do too? Absolutely. And I'm going to go back to our example of the taco cart because, you know, I can clearly remember that task like that. Anytime I would try these tasks, I wouldn't do this step. So not only was I picking the task because the task looked cool and looked engaging and I didn't have that learning objective in mind, but I also didn't spend the time to do this anticipation step, which is so important. And, you know, you mentioned solving it in many different ways to try to anticipate what students might do. And I would say like one of the most important parts for me is really trying to think of the most intuitive way that you could solve that problem without much formalized math content knowledge, if that makes sense. So like, how do I make sure that this is a task that's accessible for all students? Like if I'm sitting there looking at this task and there's literally, I've got no tools in my tool belt to solve this thing. Can I still make some progress? And am I going to value that as a teacher? That's the other piece. Like for me, I never used to value those solution strategies because I was like, ah, oh, darn, this student's doing it this way. And that's so, you know, enter in the, the grade level, a couple of grades below, like that's so grade five or that's so grade three or that's so, you know, it doesn't matter what the grade is. I was thinking like, we're in this grade and students need to be doing these things. But in reality, I need to be thinking about like, what would be a way a student can solve this with very little formalized mathematical prior knowledge coming forward. And if there isn't a way, then what could I do to make sure that maybe I change the task slightly to make sure there's that entry point? Because if I can ensure there's that entry point there, then all students can actually engage in the task. And then the teaching can happen 
later in the lesson, which is during our consolidation. So as I'm walking around the room, I'm watching what students are doing. And beforehand, I have to have done this anticipation step in order for me to know what I'm probably going to see from some. And then also to give me that freedom to note that I'm going to see some other strategies that maybe I didn't anticipate, but at least all these other ones I've already done. So it's like, I'm not overwhelmed by it. But if I just walk into the classroom and I have no idea what kids are going to do, or if I only think they're all going to solve one specific way, I'm probably wrong. Either students are going to feel like they have to solve it that one way, which means half will try and the other half won't because the ones that won't know that they're not ready to do it that way. So they just don't think it's worthwhile or I'm giving them the freedom to solve it any way they want. But if I haven't anticipated, I'm going to be overwhelmed when I see the variety of strategies that students have shared. And then I'm going to feel like anxious and stressed, and I'm not going to know what I need to do and what I need to specifically pull out later when I try to help make those connections. When I hear you talk about this, one question I think there's going to be teachers thinking about is when you're walking around the room, you're seeing these strategies. If we reference the book again, five practices book, you know, you're monitoring, that's the monitoring stage and you are selecting and sequencing. You're thinking about what strategies to show. Kyle, how is that process? Like I talked about how the anticipation stage should save us time, but specifically in this part right now, how does that save a teacher time? so that we can feel like we can cover all the curriculum standards. You know what I'm saying, Kyle? Yeah, totally. Absolutely. And, you know, when you're walking around the room and I love how you've referenced this specific monitoring, selecting and sequencing. So those are three of those five practices. I know those five practices can be hard to kind of hold in your mind. But when you start formalizing these ideas in your classroom, like I'm walking around and when we're selecting student work, there's many different ways that you can monitor, select and sequence. I mean, you're monitoring, but you're looking for specific things. So I've already pre-planned my lesson that later in this lesson, I want to make certain connections. And then sometimes some pop up along the way that you're like, oh, that's a connection I can also make, which is convenient because a student did this, or maybe I don't see any of them and I've got to go, okay, on the fly now, I've got to figure out how am I going to take what's here and link it to what that learning goal was for today. So as I'm walking around the class and I'm selecting and sequencing the student work, really what I'm doing in my mind is I'm thinking about how do I take what I see here and how do I help extend that thinking during the consolidation. You know, we want kids to feel that their voice is being heard, that they actually have, you know, we're empowering them to actually share their thinking. And we don't want to fix their strategies. Kathy Fosno always talks about, you know, don't fix the mathematician. We want to help them see their strategy through, but then we want to help push them. And again, Kathy talks about this as vertical mathematizing. So like we want to push them from the task level, which is bringing out certain ideas. And we want to kind of elevate that. We want to push that up. So what's this new learning, this new takeaway that students can take with them from this specific lesson? So for example, a task that we did recently was called Jugs of Milk. I just posted it on my blog recently, so we'll include a link in the show notes. But in this Jugs of Milk task, we're trying to help students see how they can think proportionally using different models, different mathematical models. In particular, in this class, we were working on the double number line again. We're spending a a lot of time on linear models right now in our district. And really what I'm doing is I'm walking around the class and I'm trying to take what students have done and I want to help show them that their strategies, while they all work and they're great, they actually become more difficult to use when the situation becomes more challenging, whether that be the quantities changing or maybe inconvenient quantities. Like we need a place to put our thinking so that I can use this mathematical model to help me stretch my thinking when things get more challenging or more difficult. So we're taking all of this knowledge and we're trying to model it and we're trying to actually articulate what students are saying and give them a model at the same time. So for me, that's the way that I tried to push during that one lesson to get students to see that this mathematical model is really, really helpful. And then at that point, I'm going to actually challenge them to use that new learning in some sort of extension. So I have to have that in mind as well as like, where do we go next? Like we don't want the bell to ring and then the kids to leave. They probably aren't going to really think about what I just taught them. I need to give them a task and specifically ask them to use what we've learned now 
now in order to solve something that seems related to the task that we've just done. So it might be the same context, or maybe it's a completely different problem. But now students see that, wow, I solved it this way. All of these other kids solved it that way. And then there's this tool up on the board where I can see all of the strategies coming together. Those connections are being made. And now the teacher is explicitly asking me, here, try it with this problem. Here's the extension or here's the next task. I want to see you model it this way and make sure that you can see these connections. So when you leave the room, you now have something new in your back pocket instead of just leaving with the one strategy that you came to me with. Yeah. You know, I think if I want to articulate like how this saves a teacher time, like you've referenced a lot of great things here, but I think where we can see us saving that time and that covering the curriculum more manageable when we teach this way is when... And I heard you say, you know, these connections themselves are important for that spreading of the learning because there's so many connections that can be made. If you see three different solutions, it chances are those solutions you're seeing are different days of lessons in your unit plan. Like you might have organized your plan. I'm going to teach this skill, which then, you know, builds onto this skill, which builds onto this skill. And when you pose that problem, like you're suggesting to your students, and now you're seeing different strategies, some of those strategies were in your original plan. And now you're like, okay, well, that way we solved it here is connected to this way. Like that explicit connection that you said that you're making is allowing you to tie different days together all in the same day. Does that ring true for you, Kyle? Like, have you saved time that way? Absolutely. Like when we bring in tools and strategies or tools and representations, and we really focus on the mathematical models, like we're finding the more work we're doing across the grades, the more we're seeing that some of the easy links we can make are the different tools and representations we use. So again, I'm referencing the double number line here. That's a tool that I can use across the grades, but I can also use it in different content areas or different uh, big ideas, let's call it. So if I'm working on solving some form of division problem, it's great because then I can extend my extension activity might be more of a proportional reasoning problem where instead of me trying to divide to figure out how many are in one group, I can actually ask a question that doesn't give this unit rate like that how many per one relationship. I can ask something a little bit more difficult. So now it's like, wait a second, I just asked a division problem. This whole lesson was around division but yet my extension problem was more of around a ratio or a rate. And when we can start doing that, where I go, wait a second, division is just like a precursor to some of the work that we do around ratios and rates in proportional relationships. And then wait a second, that connects to algebra. And I can start writing that as an equation. When we start to see those connections ourselves as teachers, we can then start pulling those connections or bringing them into our lessons by pre-planning them. But then also we start to see them happening in the lesson and we can articulate them as they come to us as well. So sometimes a student will, they'll share a strategy and a student's using percentages as a way to solve the problem. And you go, wait a second, that is a great way that you can solve this. And now I've tied percentages into my lesson, even though that wasn't my initial learning objective. So just like you said, it's like by having this and planning things very specifically ahead of time, but while the lesson's unfolding and students are using their own strategies, strategies, we can then take what the students have done and we can try to make connections to things we've done in the past and things that we're going to look at more explicitly in the future. So it's kind of like that precursor. We don't go, you know what, we're not going to look at Johnny's strategy over there because we haven't done that yet. Whereas I used to do that all the time. I was like, I don't want to talk about fractions because today's lesson isn't about fractions and I don't want to go down that rabbit hole, right? We've all done that where it's like, oh my gosh, now the whole lesson becomes about fractions. Well, guess what? That's what math class should be. It should be about the kids bringing these strategies. And I go, all right, they're using fractional thinking. How am I going to tie this in in order to let kids see that all of these ideas are interconnected? They're not limited to the day or to the unit that we're currently in. It's actually one big connected web. And we want kids to be able to use these strategies freely as they bounce around from idea to idea and strategy to strategy throughout the year. 
what I'm hearing almost is that our old lesson plan, like lesson one, lesson two, lesson three in a unit, it's almost like you're thinking about the big ideas of the whole unit. And then almost like every lesson tackles those big ideas and it's spread across like you use the web instead of like a linear kind of model. It's like we have to get out of this linear model sometimes when we're thinking about big ideas and bring all the big ideas out into the open. And then it's almost like you're practicing all the big ideas a little bit at a time. And I think that's where practice can fit in. And, you know, there's a lot of teachers out there that will say, okay, you did this task, but Kyle, you did one problem or one context today and this other class, the other way I had my students practice that learning skill over and over and over again in that one lesson. You know, I was reading on, I think on Facebook and someone said, we need to make our kids practice way more during our lessons and we should not be spending all class analyzing one topic or one strategy. We need to make sure that they're, sorry, not one strategy, but they're solving one problem. We need to make them practice, practice, practice. That's how you learn mathematics. What do you say to that? Like, how do we build practice into this model? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And I, I mean, balance is always key, right? And I think we've mentioned it before on the podcast that, you know, the hardest part is that oftentimes, like we humans, we want definite sort of like, yes, no, always never. We don't like having that in between. And really balance is really important. So by all means, we're not saying that every single day is going to be this big, rich task, but that rich task serves. It's almost like the whole task itself is what kind of hooks the students into a few things. First of all, becoming interested around the context and around problem solving and realizing that mathematics is all about creativity and really using our minds to use different strategies and tools to solve problems. But then after we've got them in and after we consolidate this learning, absolutely the next day might be focused on doing more practice like problems. Now, you know, you want to be creative in how you do that. Like we don't want to go, okay, so today here's the handout, go to town and that's it. But you can actually dive deeper and the task might not be as quote unquote rich. Now you can start getting a little more specific on what we're trying to have students achieve. But now that students have seen that they They've solved this big idea, this big problem, and they know that they have the tools in their tool belt to be successful. And they start to see these connections that we've done. You know, the previous day, as you consolidate, you might be then having an anchor chart being co-constructed with your students. And now that's up on the wall and students can see that, oh yeah, they're, like that's a strategy that works. That's a strategy that works. This one over here probably looks like it's most efficient. However, I'm not really sure how to do that yet. So I can back up to that previous strategy. It's like, it's seeing that I can actually now use this knowledge and actually solve some problems, but we have to do it in meaningful ways. So the practice is important, but we definitely don't want to go to the other end of the spectrum and say, okay, now do 50 of them because that's not very helpful either. So how do we mix the practice in? And when I am practicing, am I throwing in all practice around the same idea? So now it's just becoming very repetitive and procedural, or am I mixing it or what we call interleaving the ideas so that I've got a little bit of yesterday and then maybe a little bit from the week before, and then maybe a little bit from the beginning of the year. And that forces students to have to think a little bit more deeply instead of just going through and calculating area of a circle, area of a circle, area of a circle, area of a circle. It's like, you know, mixing and matching them in there to put them in this place and where they have to have a little bit of that productive struggle. They have to actually access a little bit of that deeper thinking, that slower thinking, rather than that quick thinking, that fast thinking, the, the procedures and the algorithms and so forth. So finding that balance can be difficult, but we want to make sure we're clear and people knowing that, you know, it's not every single day is this big task and there's no practice because we won't get very far there either if we are always just doing new tasks and not intentionally, or at least if we are using tasks, how am I connecting it to the prior knowledge that students have? So maybe the practice is through a big task, but I've got to make sure it's very intentional that we're not just flying all over the place and not really ever bringing any of it together, right? Because then students start to think of it as silos or individualized, and we want to make sure they see the connections between ideas. Hey there, Math Moment Makers. Are you a dedicated listener? Like I'm talking, have you been listening for a couple of months, maybe even a couple of years? 
Well, if you haven't taken a moment to leave us a rating and review on your favorite podcast platform, it would mean so much to us. It'll take you under one minute uh, so that you can help more educators see and experience the Making Math Moments That Matter podcast. Uh, Do us this huge solid. Uh, We thank you from the bottom of our hearts. And uh, here is today's episode. You know, and I think we've talked about this before that when we first dove into teaching through task and using these types of tasks, we missed some of the practice that we should have been incorporating into that learning. And, you know, I really like the idea and use the idea of the space practice versus the mass practice. And we know the research behind that is saying that your brain is growing and when it has to make the connections of what decision to make, like, is this problem that I have to solve right here? the same as the last problem, like your brain isn't growing as much if it's always the same versus your memories of you going back into your brain and and trying to find that connection where that is. Like when you repeatedly have to go look in your memory for where this stuff exists, that repeated process when it's spaced out and you're not always doing at the same time right after each other, that strengthens those connections, which strengthens your learning. Right. No, absolutely. We'll include some links for spiraling as well, because uh, we do have lots of information, including a spiraling guide. So in the show notes, there's actually three different spiraling guides. We also have some videos as well. So that's something that really unpacks this idea of how to interleave practice and really make the practice intentional. And something too, I want to say it straight out is that like a lot of times people would say like, oh, you know, Kyle and John, they're talking a lot about rich tasks and using three act math and all those things. So they must never use handouts or worksheets. There's no such thing. But no, that's not the case at all. It's about what we give students, though, has to have some intentionality behind it. And I loved that uh, a couple episodes ago, Joe Bowler was on And she was talking about something she was working on recently was exponent laws. And she had created a handout for students to do some meaningful practice. So check out Joe Bowler's uh, Twitter feed or the ucubed.org page. We'll actually include a link to the exponents activity that she shared because we don't want people to get the wrong idea and like burn textbooks or throw out every worksheet they've ever had or anything like that. It's about how do we do things intentionally? How do we make sure that we're kind of mixing things up? And again, it comes back to this idea of balance. So we've talked a lot about how we might use tasks to teach content. I think something else we want to make sure is clear is that really what we're talking about specifically here when we're teaching through task is kind of doing what we like to call the real flipped classroom. So rather than pre-teaching all of the steps and the procedures, we're kind of flipping it a little bit. Let the kids actually explore and actually problem solve. And let's do the teaching after the task and consolidate, teach through the consolidation process. That does not replace practice. It does not replace, you know, some of these other pieces in our lesson. We might have a warm up or whatever it might be. We're talking specifically about how we can actually teach mathematics lessons and still cover curriculum. And I think we've outlined, we've gone through almost like start to finish of what say that teaching through task can look like. And I think we've answered those kind of big concerns at the start of the episode about saving time and how do I cover curriculum? And like, we hope it's been clear that you are going to free up some of that time through, you know, the diagnostic assessments that you're making, and you might not have to teach all these little skills that you might, but you're also bringing these connections together and you're kind of covering more than one lesson during one lesson. This is where we've saved time. But, you know, there's still, I think, one struggle that we haven't explicitly talked about how this model can help is that, you know, at the end of a lesson, Kyle, when you realize that there's a few students who still haven't made that connection or they're not as strong on the skill that you want them to be as strong on or that learning goal and you have to make that decision. Do I move on the next day? Like, what do I do after? Do I proceed with what I was doing or do I have to pivot back and redo something? Like, how does teaching through task and this model that we're kind of outlining for people compared to the old model? Because in the old model, you would have to make the decision, okay, this student clearly isn't making the connections. They're weak on this skill. I know that... They need more time here. You would have to pause your kind of unit plan and go, okay, do I insert a lesson? 
and space out my timeline or do I keep going on and I say, okay, well, that kid, you know, I have to keep going on because I have to cover my curriculum. How do you see this model that we're proposing when you start with tasks help this situation? Absolutely. And it's a great question. I'm glad you caught it there, John, because what this process allows us to do, especially if we are thinking intentionally about students are bringing with them, that means like the next day, I'll use the word, it depends again, because I don't think there's a right or a wrong way here, but the benefit you get through doing this teaching through task and consolidating is that at the end, when I jot down what students know and what students still need to work on, this is again, kind of tying into the assessment process. Like as I'm assessing, walking around, watching what students are doing, that will likely impact tomorrow's lesson. I will always have to stop and ask myself, do I have to proceed as planned or should I proceed as planned or do I pivot my plan? But the reality is, is back in the day when I used to teach and kind of check off the checklist, I had no intention of coming back to an idea. Like I checked it off. It was like today we did this and now we got to move on. Whereas here you have more flexibility to bring these ideas back. So when I'm looking at what students know, I like to think of the course to my curriculum content as these big ideas, but then also there's lots of details. And in my old lesson planning, I would take the big idea and all the details and we'd cover them all on that same day or within a couple days. And that's a lot. So what I have to figure out is like, are students struggling with a big idea or are they struggling with some details? I'm just calling them the details. Like they've got the general idea, but they're struggling with these very specific details. So really depending on what it is they're struggling on, that will, should influence where I go next. Tomorrow, if I'm doing something that's extending this idea, are these details going to hold my students back? And if so, then yeah, I got to pivot. Or is it not going to hold students back? They can still carry on. What can I do intentionally in tomorrow's consolidation to help address some of those details? So that's kind of a big way of looking at, kind of zoomed out way of looking at it. But when you're really thinking about what is it that students are struggling on? Do I have a handful of students that are struggling with a detail? Is that something I can do by pulling a small group while students are working on some practice? I can bring a group of five or six students to the back and I can actually work with them? Or is this something that like we really need to focus on more deeply? And does it have to happen tomorrow? Or is this something I could come back to next week? Or maybe it's in a couple weeks time. The key is knowing what that is and then what I'm going to do about it. And I think by using this structure, we have given ourselves more freedom to be more specific on addressing those student learning needs that they may have. Whereas if I'm just sort of teaching content and moving on, that's not really going to be super helpful. So keep those down. You've got to have them written down and logged somewhere so that you know, I'm like, oh, I got to get back to this somehow. How am I going to get back to it? Is it small group? Is it in the consolidation two days from now? Is it next week? But it's not never. It's not, you know, hopefully the students will go home and they'll figure it out on their own because the reality is that's unlikely to happen. So hopefully that gives some people some ideas from this entire episode. We've really tried to unpack how we can make memorable math moments and cover the curriculum at the same time. So again, we want to be taking the curriculum. We want to show these connections and we want to make sure that we're making it memorable for students because if it's not memorable, then really what's the point anyway? If students are leaving our classroom and this information's not sticking, then have I really covered the curriculum, right? Am I, can I really say I've covered it? Sure, I did it, but did the students learn it? And I think that's the big piece that we have to be thinking about always. Yeah, so we hope that we have done that for you, but I know that you have still questions, concerns, like these are not like big issues that are going to be solved for everybody just every day. So we know that you've got questions out there and you've got concerns. Hit us up, email us, or go onto Twitter or Facebook and ask them away. And we'd love to continue this conversation with you outside of this podcast. Like go to the show notes page. There's a comment section there. Ask away. I'd love to have this discussion keep going. Because I think only through us talking about it and working through all these concerns and possibilities, there's so many different scenarios that occur 
I think through that discussion with each other, we can do this better. And I think that's one of the big things we want this podcast to be about is, is that we can do this better as long as we do it with each other and help each other kind of grow and experience different situations and learn from our mistakes. You know, like we've made a ton of mistakes and, and we're still looking to grow. Awesome. That's right, John. So uh, yeah, we've had a blast here just kind of chatting this out. But as John said, there might be more questions. Maybe you have something very specific. You can apply for a math mentoring moment episode by going to makemathmoments.com forward slash mentor. Again, makemathmoments.com forward slash mentor. And you could be on the show just like Kirsten Dick was on back in episode nine, where we had a mentoring moment, or maybe talking with Sarah Jane Wells. That was an episode seven, I believe it was, when she came on and she brought forward a challenge from her classroom for us to untangle. So make sure you go to makemathmoments.com forward slash mentor and make sure that you don't miss a future episode as they come out each week by subscribing on your favorite podcast platform or by simply searching on that platform. But we also have a couple quick links. What's one of those quick links there, John? For iTunes, uh, you can go to makemathmoments.com forward slash iTunes. For Google Play, go to makemathmoments.com forward slash play. For Spotify, and you know, Spotify is a great spot for podcast listening. Go to makemathmoments.com forward slash Spotify. Awesome. And quick links for most other popular podcasting platforms exist as well. If you're liking what you're hearing, please share the podcast with a colleague and help us reach a wider audience by leaving us a review on iTunes and tweeting us at Make Math Moments on Twitter. Show notes and links to resources from this episode can be found at makemathmoments.com forward slash episode 12. Again, that is makemathmoments.com forward slash episode 12. You can also find Make Math Moments on all social media platforms and seek out our free private Facebook group, Math Moment Makers K to 12. Don't miss our next episode. Be sure to check out our four-part lesson series at makemathmoments.com forward slash lesson one. Once again, that's makemathmoments.com forward slash lesson one. Well, until next time, I'm Kyle Pierce. And I'm John Orr. High fives for us. And high fives for you. If you are a district leader of mathematics, a math coach, a math curriculum coordinator, a superintendent and principal, getting teacher buy-in for effective math teaching practice is top of mind. And plans only go so far. You can make you know detailed plans and, and carefully designed goals with clear objectives and key results that are measurable. But that can feel like it all falls flat if we can't engage our teachers in the work. Working with teachers who do not want to change their teaching practices is one of the most frustrating and challenging parts of our job. How do I help teachers engage in effective teaching practices when they keep pushing us away? If you can't reach the tipping point in mass adoption of effective mathematics teaching strategies, then it's it's likely we won't see student improvement in mathematics. We have a free training uh, an accompanying workbook for leaders of mathematics like you. Uh, the, math, the Make Math Moments team, myself, John, and Kyle, walk you through our four-stage process uh, we use with district partners to create clear, measurable, sustainable PD action plans, but more specifically on how to also get teacher buy-in so that it drives student engagement. So step one, register for this free training, get your planning workbook, um, and then watch the training. Schedule some time on your calendar so you can watch it and go through the workbook. After completing that workbook, you're going to have a clear, measurable vision, action plan for mathematics to get more teacher buy-in, but also be able to hit your goals for the 2024-2025 school year. So head on over to makemathmoments.com forward slash four stages to start this free training.